Hey, peace and blessings to you. My name is Jerry B. I am the Entree Musician, and so are you. This is one of those special episodes where we go back to the beginning of the Entree Musician, where I was just trying to figure out what a podcast looked like and uh, how in the heck do I ask a question to anyone. So this is going to be fun. But the guest that we are featuring was a gracious, gracious man. His name is Fred Hughes. And, you know, I was thinking this interview was about three years ago or so, like I said, at the beginning of The Entree Musician. And I thought, man, you know what? I should get in touch with Fred, find out what he's doing and catch up with him. But when I reviewed the footage, I thought, man, he shared so much wisdom and uh, shared so much grace and the amount of experience he has as a world traveling musician, uh, just really digging in deep. He gave his heart. And uh, other than some audio difficulties, which you might encounter from the recording, I think you're going to garner a wealth of of wisdom. And so I'm still going to try to get in touch with uh, Fred and catch up with him. But this was one of my favorite uh, interviews from the early days. So uh, it was a two-part series. I've uh, re-edited it. Can you say that three times fast? I re-edited the video. And so with respect to that, uh, I'm going to present it to you. Without further ado, this is Fred Hughes, D.C. musician, piano man extraordinaire, and uh, he really shares his heart in this interview. And oh my goodness, we're in for a treat today because Fred Hughes has done it all for over three decades. He has been absolutely on point. He embodies the two words that every entree musician should have. Those two words are always working right that's true very true yes, yes. i'm doing great it's it's great to finally meet you i know we had texted back and forth and facebook message but it's great to see you and great to be with you and talk with you i'm looking forward to the next uh, few minutes well absolutely man and there's another two words that i want to throw at you too fred as i've observed your artistry from the very first time we begin texting and those are accomplished musicians. You are absolutely phenomenal. Look, man, my nose is brown enough. I don't have to say anything that I don't mean. You are absolutely on point. I've been enthralled by what I've learned and heard about you. I know you got started at eight years old, so you got to give me the summary, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for those kind words. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I, I always was around music. My dad was a musician, and so from the time um, that I was a little kid, I, I this is all I ever wanted to do. In fact, uh, my mom used to tell stories that she would come home. She worked the um, the seven to eleven uh, shift at the hospital, and she'd come home, and I'd still be up in the high chair. My dad's playing jazz, and I'm sitting there grooving to the music when I should have been in bed. And so. Um, Fortunately, my dad waited to the right time to actually say, okay, I think it's time for you to play. Although I always wanted to play, you know, his band would rehearse, I'd be downstairs, you know, banging on the drums or banging on the piano when they were taking a break from their rehearsals. And then he would, I would go along with him uh, uh, to uh, concert band rehearsals and sit in the tuba section with him. So I always knew I wanted to play, but it wasn't until it just seemed like the right time to all of a sudden an organ showed up at the house, and all of a sudden I was playing tuba. 
And I started doing both of those with my dad, playing next to him in a concert band on tuba and in his groups uh, on uh, organ. As I started on organ um, back then. And I was in the Musicians Union um, at 12, playing professionally. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate. I, 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 I get to go back to my hometown uh, this weekend and play. And uh, I, uh, I did an interview for the radio station or the uh, uh, newspaper. And um, I didn't realize at the time, but it's, it's who I am. Uh, I spoke so much about the community that I grew up in and all the mentors that I had. And I can't say enough about that. That type of education and getting, getting that kind of experience from a young age is why I am who I am. Absolutely. And that's a neighboring to Ohio. We're in Ohio. That was Lancaster, PA. Is that right? Correct. As a kid, I used to go to Lancaster, Ohio because I had relatives there. Wow. Wow. So we're closer than we thought, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're really based in D.C. now and doing a lot of things down in D.C., but actually internationally, too. But you make your home in D.C.? That's correct. That's correct. Man, and then, so the military training, there was a lot of military playing. Tell me about that. Did you enlist or were you just, how'd that work out? Yeah, again, it goes to the community. Um, the, the band that I grew up in, uh, there were so many young musicians that went out of that band and went into all of the premier bands in Washington, D.C. Two uh, young musicians that were featured as soloists from the time they were kids in the community band, both made by the time they were 18, the president's own Marine band. And uh, so we all had a very high bar set as to what we would do. And, you know, I was growing up playing tuba and keyboards, wasn't sure. At, at, at that time, I thought I wanted to be a professional tuba player. I wanted to be in that president's own Marine band. And uh, as it would be, there was no, audition coming up for two years after I graduated from high school. My dad said, you're not staying around the house to, to wait. No, it's not going to happen. So there was an audition opening for the Army Bands program, and I got to go to the band that I wanted to right out of, out of high school. And so that's how I started in the whole thing. Ironically, two of my, uh, one of my tuba teachers and one of my keyboard teachers both said to me, because I said, should I go to college or what should I do? said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to play. And they said, well, then you should go play. And that was how the military obviously was the door that opened that seemed like the logical way to do it. Um, you know, in hindsight, I've been very fortunate because of my experiences and all that I've done that I've taught on the collegiate level. You couldn't do that anymore now. You just couldn't. I mean, nowadays you do have to go to college and you have to get that part of the education if you're going to be in the teaching side of things. So things have definitely changed from the time I came up through. But yeah, military seemed like the way to go. And I, I had a wonderful time. I really did. I got so many great experiences through it. So, yeah. And Thanks for asking. Well, uh, travel too, I'm sure, you know, that facilitated all the travel that uh, you've done. Certainly, yes. Um, I mean, my first uh, seven years, I was in the first army band, which was stationed uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. Then I got sent to Korea and I was in Korea for four years, um, recorded a bunch of albums, was playing all the time. I mean, it's the closest thing in my lifetime that I could imagine what it was like for Dizzy Gillespie, Miles and all those on 52nd Street. Because jazz was just becoming popular in Korea and everybody was enjoying it. And it got to the point that I was doing so much on the, on the outside that it was time for me to leave the army. So I left the army to stay in Korea. Um, Ended up back in the States and right towards the end of, of what would have been if I was going to come back in the military, I'd have to uh, go back to basic training 
I was on a gig and both the Army Blues and the Army Jazz Ambassadors, which are the two premier jazz ensembles in the Washington DC area, the Jazz Ambassadors Travels, both needed a piano player and they asked me if I'd come back in. So Jazz Ambassadors were gonna do all the festivals in Europe that year. And you know, what you gonna do, stay in DC or go to Europe? I, I chose the Jazz Ambassadors and it was a wonderful, another six years with them. Uh, and it got to a point where I was doing so much traveling and playing and things were going and it was one of those decisions. Do I stay for a retirement or do I take some of the opportunities that I have right now? And opportunities and rest, uh, you know, it's in the resume. It's amazing because it's those little decisions that really create your destiny. And so at the time, you're not thinking 25 years ahead, but as you look back, and even I believe that concert from Seoul, Korea with Fred Hughes Trio, that's 2014 in Seoul. And if it wasn't for the decision that you made a while back, you wouldn't have been able to create that platform for you. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and I, one of the greatest years of my life um, was as the uh, conductor and musical supervisor for the Three Tenors, which eventually became Cope Dixon and Young. Had I been in the military, I'd have never been able to do that. And that, that was one of those decisions that it was, it was wonderful to be in that situation while they were, they were a great group to be with. And I got to conduct many great orchestras. And yeah, that's a decision that, and it's interesting that, you know, it's, it, it's to the point of why we're talking, is that was one of those decisions as a musician, my trio was really starting to get a lot of really great work with uh, jazz festivals. And I got the call to come be with the three more tenors. And it was one of those points that you go, okay, now I'm going to have to call two jazz festivals and tell them, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make this gig because here's the opportunity I've gotten. And they, they were like, wow, that's really cool. You got to go do it. Ironically, those two jazz festivals, I can't get back on them. So it's, you know, it's, it's, you make the decisions, but you know, you got to go. You've been to Newport, You've been to uh, Nice. You've been to Montreux. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what can you say? You know, and, and you've had the opportunity as a conductor to do what Chicago, uh, uh, Baltimore. You've done uh, L.A. Philharmonic. So I mean, God is God has blessed you, but you've done your part in participating in the blessing. I'd like to think so, yeah. yeah. But I am very, very fortunate to have so many wonderful opportunities and great people to work with. So, yeah, thank you. Well, tell me about the book. You're an author as well. So you have the jazz pianist and this, I don't want to mispronounce it, but the left-hand chords and music theory. Do I, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, the jazz pianist, left-hand voicings and chord Voicing. theory. Yes. So it's like kind of, it, the reason that the chord theory is in there is because the voicings that we play as a piano player are based on the rules and the theory of, of music. And so when I originally had that book um, picked up by Warner Brothers, we, we tossed and turned about ideas. And I'm like, well, I am teaching theory that goes along with this. And so that's why we put that in the, in the, in the title. Ironically, that book was part of my text when I was teaching college. And I was at um, the International Association of Jazz Educators, IAJE convention in New York. And I had a record that I wanted to pitch and the book and got to meet the right people. That's how the book came about. I was already using it. So I knew it worked in the collegiate level. Then it was just going through and, and, and making it a self-help type situation so that anybody could read it and, and figure it out from there. 
but again, you know, kind of the theme of, of, of my, my career is that it is about the work. It is about the constant day and day getting in those trenches and doing what you need to do. And that's how it came about. It just wasn't that I sat down and went, I'm going to write a book. I mean, this was about, okay, I need to do this to teach this course. And oh, by the way, this has been working for all these years, but I've never sat down and put it in a specific way of doing things. And so, again, it, 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 it really is a very clear path as to how, you know, that happened. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And that's really, you know, the dynamics of being an entree musician is taking every single little opportunity that presents itself, many of them which are out of the studio or off the stage and going, how can I make this work for me? Correct. Correct. Yeah, most definitely. You're definitely doing it. Now, I have to ask you about your wonderful music because here's what I hear. Let me tell you what I hear. I hear an incredibly accomplished musician, and I mean that wholeheartedly. I hear your piano playing, but I hear vulnerability. I hear a transparency. And so when you are doing a Bill Evans tune or a Keith Jarrett tune, I hear confidence, but I also hear, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and the soul of it just comes out of you. How do you embrace that? I mean, you've done Chikoria, Fats Waller, you've done all of this stuff. How, how do you approach these giants and still say, well, this is who I am. I'm Fred Hughes. This is my identity. Wow. I've never had somebody really ask that question so succinctly. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I know that. I know that. I know that, but but I mean that the answer to this question is so deep in in so many levels, and that's so where deep. we go. That's where we go on the entree decision. All right, all right. So I guess we have a few minutes. Um, so I have to go back. Um, emotion. You when you when you put the emotion side in there. Thank you so much. The emotion side comes from experiences as a kid. I, in fact, I had this conversation the other day with a musician I was playing with and, and sitting as a young kid in listening to that community band that my dad played in, I can remember vividly from when I was maybe five, six, when you, you know, if I think back, that's about the time frame that I can start to really remember things that happened in my life that really affected me. And I would be so moved by what was happening in that community band and the I mean, it's community band. I mean, it wasn't professional musicians. Some of the people that were in there were professional musicians. Here's a group of people that, because of the conductor, are playing at a level and, and playing emotionally in a way that, you know, I knew this was something special. You know, they worked hard and here it is. Here it is, you know? Um, so that, that on, on that level affected me. And then as I continued to be exposed to all kinds of different music, Another side of me that affected me deeply was my grandmother um, would take me to church um, every time I visited. And um, they were Assembly of God. And some of the spiritual things that happened in Assembly of God uh, churches caused me to go, whoa, you know, there's something happening here that's deep, 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 deep. And then uh, Sunday nights, we would go to churches, um, this was York, Pennsylvania, and we would go to churches, um, black churches in, in York, and listen to these gospel groups that would come in from Philadelphia and New York, and 
I was so moved by the music. There was just this spirit and soul that was phenomenal. And then as I got into, you know, understanding how this whole thing works or trying to understand, I was one of those kids that um, back in showing my age now, when Park City Mall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at one time was considered the biggest mall in, on the East Coast. And I was one of those kids that demonstrated organs. If you walk by the store, there's this little kid playing the organ. That was me. Wow. And so, so I'm sitting there playing and church groups would come in from Philadelphia and people would come into the, to the store to just check out the pianos and organs that were in there. And these folks would sit down and just start playing, you know, and, and, and they'd hear me play and I'd hear them play and they'd play stuff. I'm like, what did you just do? How did you do this? I, I don't know. I can't even read music. I'm just playing. I'm like, oh, wow, that's just too deep. So, you know, as you continue down the, the path, you know, it just, there's certain things that happen. So those were the, the, the core things that happened to me that made me realize that if you're going to be inspired by music, there's something that you've got to put forth in there that's going to make it work. The rest to me has just been trial and tribulation, tri you know, trial and, and error in, in, in the ways that I do things, you know. Uh, there are times when the emotion side got so much in there that the technical side took a hit and vice versa. And so then it just becomes years of experience and finding out what works. The one thing I do want to say, though, and you hit on it earlier, is that in what you hear in my playing, the vulnerability and so on and so forth. Yes, I try never to check it that, that okay, I'm, I'm emotional here. There's something happening with, with whatever I'm playing, whether I'm conducting an orchestra or I'm in with my trio. If something's happening there, I never go, well, I have to be sure that, well, maybe this might happen or I, I, I should be careful here. Never. You just allow all of that to happen, you know? And hopefully it all works. Oh, it works, let me tell you. And because we are recording this video uh, right before the Christmas holiday, I think you, uh, you are on a Christmas tour that's coming up, but uh, one of the links that I'm gonna put in this video is your rendition or rendition of Silent Night and talk about gospel, talk about soul, talk about blues, talk about that Assembly of God, Pentecostal approach. All that is Thank in you. that trio. So, um, brother, I have been listening, and I, I heard it in there, like, okay, we're not just talking about chops. We're talking about heart. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about your artistry. Thank you so much. That means so much. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much that means. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. It came across, brother. Absolutely. Now, your passion, though, what drives you? You've been at this since you were eight years old. Uh, what is your passion? You talked about being in the trenches, but what gets you up in the morning? Is it the next gig? Is it writing another song? Is it teaching? Is it conducting? What's the driving force to Fred, Fred Hughes? I don't know what else to do. There's really nothing else that I can do. I mean, over the years, sometimes I think we even uh, texted back and forth about there are times when I, I'm like, maybe I should just do something else. You know, you, you, it just there are some days when the business of the whole thing will beat you down. 
And you just think, well, maybe I should just do something else. And I'm like, well, what else would I do that I don't know anything else? So for me, it's looking at the calendar. It's, it's, you know, getting gigs, trying to put yourself out there and all that. But for me, it's, it's every day. I don't know anything else to do. And the only way I know how to do it is to continue to try and improve, to play and hopefully inspire as much as I possibly can. You know, um, Somebody said to me the other day about a standing ovation, and, and I'm like, you know, when that happens, I'm grateful and I feel blessed. But what's going on in my head was, why are they standing up? Man, what I just played, I, oh man, I got to practice, man. That was, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I felt like the moment was there, but the fingers weren't there. You, you know, it, it's, it's all of that, you know? Oh, I dig that, man. I, I, I've had those shows where all the accolades were coming, and I'm thinking, they were at a different show than I was. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Oh my goodness. Now, as far as musicians are concerned, you did this uh, wonderful tribute concert to all the great pianists and whatnot. Is there one that you really go to, is your go-to person to say, he or she inspires me, they're my motivation, this is where I'm trying to get to. And I'm not talking about their fame or accolades, but as far as what sure. they bring. Well, you know, it, 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 it changes from day to day, week to week, month to month. Uh, there's so many great piano players that have inspired me over the years. There are probably two, three, four people that I, I know that I can go back to, that I'll find something that I never heard before. And it, again, it probably goes to the, the whole way that they're able to put their heart and soul into that. And so that would be the great Shirley Horn from, uh, uh, from this area. Um, she just, the way that she accompanied herself, she was a phenomenal piano player, but her package was, she would sing so passionately and play so beautifully behind herself that it was just, I unfortunately never got the chance to say to her, just the voicings that you played on the piano as you sang were just phenomenal. I mean, it was, it's what inspired me to try to find places in, in, in a piece of music where just the right chord voicing brings out even more of that beautiful melody or soulfulness or, or just any, anything there. So obviously it's her, Bill Evans. I can't say enough about Bill recently. Um, I, I, for some reason, never got the entire turn, uh, turn out the stars, which was the last recording his trio did at uh, the Village Vanguard a couple months before he passed. And I never got the entire CD package. And I just recently got that. And that I can't, I can't get past the third tune on the thing. It's just the, you can hear in there and, and, and he knew he was, he was on his way out. He, he knew that life was not going to be much longer for him and you can hear that passion of trying to get everything out it's just phenomenal um bill uh keith jarrett is constantly an inspiration to me and the reason is is because they never rehearse that trio never rehearses and just the, the way that they're able to spontaneously put so much energy and passion into something and have it sound perfect is is, is just absolutely great. And then Oscar Peterson. I mean, Oscar, from Chops to his groove, 
I mean, that's a study forever. I mean, the minute you think you know the groove, put on an Oscar record and find out how much further you need to go to get right in the center of where that groove is. Absolutely. Now, I know the trio is your default, uh, but are there other combinations that you, as a performer, not as a conductor, but as a performer, like experimenting with? Uh, you know, things that we don't see on this side of the Fred Hughes artistry? Uh, you know, not really. It, for me, it's more of people. It's, you know, people. You know, you, you talk to somebody and you find that they're on the same place musically as to where you are. And so to me, that's what, what I want to experiment. I don't care what they play, you know. But right. Google player comes to me and says, I'd like to play Bill Evans tunes. I'm like, let's go, you know. It, it, it's about that. I, I really don't. Yes, because the trio is where I live. That's where, you know, that's what I'm constantly looking at and hearing in my head. But I'm open up for, for whatever, you know, collaboration wants to come my way. I, I'll take it. Oh, that's what's up. Now, let me ask you this question. Uh, from a standpoint of difficulty, you brought up the business end of being an entre musician. What is the ire of Fred Hughes' artistry of saying, you know, if I, I just, I know this has to be done, but... I'd rather not. What aspects of, of business or whatever that thing is, because we all have them. What's your straw? Yeah, uh, I think we even talked about that uh, when we uh, uh, first connected, was how the business has changed. Um, I used to know how to, to work it, you know? I, I knew that, okay, if I did my research and I wanted to play these clubs, it's going to take me a while to get that club owner on the phone, but eventually if I got him on the phone, somehow I could probably get a gig or at least get an answer. Sure. Now it's just, you know, do you text? Do you Facebook message? Do you email? Do you call? You know, how do you get through anymore? And for me, you know, it, 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 it shows how many years I've been in the business that some of the festivals that were for years I could count on, I'd play the festival every year. All of a sudden it changed hands, there's a new artistic director and you can't catch a cold. So it's, 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 that part has been frustrating and I guess just because I've been doing it for so long, eventually you go, well, how long do I have to keep doing this that I have to work so hard to get a gig? And it seems that anymore, especially to play on the level that I'd like to play at um, with festivals and concerts and so on and so forth, that's even harder work to make it happen. And let's not even talk about touring. Touring. Talk, talk about it. Talk about it. Well, that becomes its own, as yeah. I think we've discussed. It becomes yeah. its own frustration. I mean... Do you say yes to a gig that you know, okay, that's going to deplete the rest of the tour money because the deal just doesn't make any sense? Do you take it? Is it, is it really worth it? You know, there was a, uh, it still is, it's under a different name, but when the Jazz Connect convention first started in New York City, I remember sitting um, and listening to um, bassist, and I, I, I apologize for not giving him credit for this because I'm not going to remember who it was, but he said, that selling his music on YouTube was the capital he needed to go on tour. That's how he put his band on tour because he couldn't do it from just the gigs and what he got paid from the gigs. If he wasn't selling his music on YouTube, he wasn't taking his band on tour. 
or if he did, it was going to go deeply into his pocket. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you, you ask, you, you wake up every morning and you go, Hey, I, 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 there's nothing else I know to do. I have to do this. Absolutely. And then, uh, there, you know, you've proven that there's no real formula. If there's no opportunity, often entrepreneur musicians have to create the opportunity. We have to constantly be creative to have the money coming in to get the bills, to pay the band, to pay other people that surround the band to make the show even happen. That's correct. That's correct. And, and there's that. I talk about this a lot um, in, the, in the D.C. area because I, I've noticed it happening is that when I first came to the area, um, the very first time I was here was in 79. And there was no way that I knew I was ever going to play Blues Alley in the next five, six years. And now I was playing, I was fortunate enough, young musician, to be playing with some really great musicians in the D.C. area. But I knew my level was just just not there. I needed to punch a bunch of cards. And at the time, there was a club system that was kind of that way. I mean, you you weren't going to play unless you had punched these certain cards. That checks and balances are not there anymore. And so it's it's changed again how the business is going. And unfortunately, there are times when folks are playing in clubs that are bringing all of their friends and so on and so forth and well they're good musicians and I you know I'm glad that they're out there playing you know it, it's 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 taken away from those of us that do this for a living you know you got a you got a you got a full-time gig and I'm glad that you want to go out and play but stop for a second and, and realize that if you're playing a club for free that club owner is going to do that for a couple times. And if he realizes he's, he can do the rest of his week with, with musicians that just want to play, why would he pay a full-time professional musician money to play? So sometimes I think we forget about how the whole process works. And we as musicians, and I think you and I spoke about this the very first time that we uh, spoke on Trish Hennessy's show, is that we sometimes lose facts. And we, meaning the guys that have been around for a, a good amount of time, need to get out there yeah <laughs> need to get out there and and teach and mentor and realize that hey you know you're not quite ready yet check this out you know and, and now i'm going to leave you with this thought 25 years from now if somebody's doing this and you've finally gotten to the point that you're playing clubs for x amount of dollars and now somebody's doing exactly what you're doing now how are you going to do this for 25 years yeah, you're going to have to uh, work at Walmart. <laughs> you, you, I mean, that's just the reality of it. Because yes, sir. The fact of the matter is that rate, that recidivity rate, is not 25 years, it's two or three. You know what I mean? It's more rapid because you're right. From the club owner's perspective, I can have open jam nights. You know what I mean? And so we get the 25 musicians in. The patrons who are paying for the drinks and their food, they're enjoying the music, and these guys are coming in. You've got six drummers, 12 keyboard players, 14 basses, and yo, do your thing. Because I, I think one of the issues from a musician's standpoint is we have a passion for playing, we have a passion for collaboration. And oh, you know, so and so is going to be down at Bobby's Bar on Tuesday, and I'm going to get to play with him. And the money doesn't, they don't even think about it. 
part of it, especially if they're a music student, because they want that. So there can be a way that some promoters, and I'm not going to, you know, just dispatch all promoters or bar owners or venue owners, but that's an opportunity for them, and they don't have to pay any entertainment. It's, we have to think. Yep. And the other thing is, is that you got to think about the fact that, that yes, you want to go out and play and you want to play as often as possible. But I think another dynamic that is missing um, these days and something that even as a teacher, I sometimes forget to push with, with students is that you got to go listen. And that means you don't play. You leave your horn at home and you go out and you listen. Some people, some, some people talk about it as, as support the musicians. Okay, that's one thing, but I look at it as, a, as an education, okay? I would never have thought to go listen to all the folks that I had on record and think that I was going to sit in with them. I, you know, I'm going to sit there and listen to them and, and, and soak up this lesson I'm getting and feel fortunate about being able to be here, afford to do this, and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend months in the practice room before I'm going to come out and try this again. And I think we've lost touch with some of that, too. Is that's how you get there. Yeah, I was in the Army's Jazz Ambassadors. It's the Army's premier touring jazz ensemble called the Jazz Ambassadors. Yes, Jazz Ambassadors. And then after you got out, take it from there. Okay, after I got out, um, and the reason that I got out was that, that again, as we talked about in the first uh, segment, is that I it was one of those decisions that, Okay, at that point, I had 13 years in the military, seven more years till I could retire and at least have some form of an pension for the rest of my life. But I was getting, because of my experience with the Jazz Ambassadors, I was playing these different festivals all around the world. I was getting phone calls to go out and play on my own. Was, uh, I guess because they featured me as a soloist, folks were liked what I did and all of a sudden I'm getting calls and, you know, at one point I said to this one festival uh, promoter, I said, you do know that I'm in the Jazz Ambassadors. He says, yeah, that's why I'm calling you. I saw you with the Jazz Ambassadors. I said, well, you know, I'm still in the Army Jazz Ambassadors and I tour pretty much with them. He goes, yeah, well, if you ever change your mind. And that's when I went, okay. And again, we talk about decisions. At that point you go, do I spend another seven years and get that retirement? And will these opportunities still be there? And I came to the conclusion, plus my, my kids were at a point there where I felt that I needed to get off the road for the amount of time that that band was on the road. We do a 40-day spring and fall tour and a 30-day summer tour. So I was gone and my kids were both in high school at the time and I thought, I need to get off the road and, and be there, you know? So I did and started playing a bunch of festivals with my trio and the rest, we just keep moving from there. So um, what year did you start the Fred Hughes Trio from that? How many years elapsed from the ambassadors, you getting off the road, being that family guy, doing the music, and then the trio starts up? Yeah. Well, I've always had a trio. Um, in the, in, when I was in high school, it was an organ trio. Um, and then when I was in the uh, Army Band um, at, in the Washington, D.C. area before I went to Korea, um, I had an organ trio then. When I went to Korea, the group was a trio called Just Friends, and then we added a singer, um, a Korean vocalist, and it became Just Friends was a quartet. 
when I came back to um, the United States for four years between my first stint in the Army and the, and the Jazz Ambassadors, I had a trio called Alternative um, in the Central Pennsylvania, friend, or Central Pennsylvania area. Um, and then when I went into the Jazz Ambassadors in 1989, I started essentially the Fred Hughes Trio. So I was playing in the DC area a lot with my trio while I was still in the Jazz Ambassadors. Now and was the, Frank Russo the drummer then, in the very first iteration of the trio? No, no. Uh, uh, that first uh, iteration of the trio was a bass player by the name of Tom Williams and a drummer by the name of Keith Kilgo. Keith Kilgo was the uh, one of the founding members of Blackbirds and uh, Walking in Rhythm and Rock Creek right. Park and all those great tunes, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, from playing with him, you know, I started immersing myself thanks to him and many other folks like him in the DC scene, getting to re meet the right people and all, all that. And so, again, that combination of timing where all of a sudden between the work that the trio was already getting and the promise of work because of the phone calls I was getting, it's like, okay, I, I, I'm sorry, but I need to leave and move on to the next chapter, so. Absolutely. Now, so, uh, oh, you're on over 30 recordings. You have eight albums, as I, as I uh, have been able to count, from Fred Hughes' trio. Correct. Eight tricks really dominating 2017 and being one of the top five uh, jazz albums. So, um, what was the journey from the first album to Matrix to, you know, I, I'm sure 2019 is just going to kill you. You got something in the works, I'm sure of it. But what was that to be able to be a downbeat and to chart the way you did and to see Matrix explode? Uh, there it really becomes about teamwork. Um, I realized that I couldn't do it myself. I had tried the previous records, and it actually started with the Christmas record um, that I said, look, if I'm gonna do this, um, I need to put a, together a team. And I was very fortunate in that this one uh, uh, radio promotion team kept contacting me. And they just kept, to the point that I actually called, um, uh, the, the name of the production company is Carry On Productions, and I called Carrie Gaffney and I said, look, here's some of my concerns. She, she didn't hang up on me. And, uh, and I, she said a lot of really good things, and, and I, I, I let that all stew for a while. And when I was ready for the Christmas record to come out, I called her and I said, look, okay, so I'm gonna ask you another question. Maybe you'll hang up on me this time. And I said, we're putting together a Christmas record would you promote it? And she said, you know, jazz radio really doesn't do a lot with holiday offerings. She said, but send me this stuff and, and we'll listen to it and we'll see what's going on. He listened to it, she said, yes, let's do this. I'm game, I will push it as much as I can. So she pushed it, it did well. That particular record um, ended the, the end of the year in the top five slot, even though it was a Christmas record. So in radio airplay. So I, I was very fortunate uh, with that. And then when Matrix came out, she took the ball and, and ran with that too. Now here's, here's, you know, with the entrepreneurial side of things, here's where just recently, uh, three weeks ago, we did a concert in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, Germantown Performing Arts Center. And the gentleman that had contacted me, I was curious, he, his initial 
contact with me was, been following your career for a while. We love your music, I love your music, and I think you'd be perfect for our concert series. Would you consider coming down? We worked out a deal and we went down. And the night before the concert, we played for um, a sponsorship party, basically a meet and greet for people that were helping sponsor the concert. And I was really excited to meet this gentleman and ask him, so how is it that you found us? And he said, because of this gentleman, and at that point, uh, the uh, program director for the radio station in Memphis had walked in the room. Uh, Malvin Massey was his name. Malvin, wonderful guy. That's a story on its own about some of the things you and I are discussing about radio promotion. But anyways, he said he had your Christmas record. He was playing it. And then you came out with Matrix and he called me and said, you got to get these people on, the, on, on this concert series. So again, doing some of the right things. Yes, it costs money to put the right people on your team if you're gonna put things out there, you know, as we discussed before. 350 CDs, 300 CDs that you send out that you're not gonna see any money from, you know, it's just gonna go. Postage to get it out there, and then paying your team for their time to really do their job. And this is one of those situations where that entire thing took, uh, took a while for it to manifest itself, but it manifested itself. So yeah, uh, you know, that old adage of sometimes it costs money to make money is very true when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, and that's why you wake up every morning and you have that plan and you're going, okay, well, we have to do this to make that happen because this needs to happen to get that on point because I need to be in Memphis for the jazz festival. Yep, yep, yep. Really interesting. Yeah, I can't turn, I can't turn the camera, but I, I, there's a whiteboard over here on the side, and that's my planning. I found that 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 if I put it up there, it starts manifesting itself. You don't if you you know you got to work that plan. You got to put that plan up there, and you got to work it. Talk, it talk about that. Talk about that a little bit because there are younger Fred Hughes who are out there and who have the chops, who you know gone through the training, but it's that entrepreneurial side that they're kind of missing. Because a lot of us can be off balance where it's all music, all music, but the whiteboard, that plan, that looking at the month ahead, planning out the year. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What well, goes to it really does go to everything that we do, um, including something that I said earlier uh, uh, about taking a club gig for free. Yeah. You know. All of that is part of the planning process. And again, we go back to something I said earlier in that I was very fortunate to, to have some great mentors and the best one I had was my dad. My dad still is my best mentor. He said to me a long time ago, he said, if you want to play what you want to play, stay home in the basement. If you want to make money, you got to play what people want to play here. Yeah. Now, at the time that was rough, you know, and as a jazz musician, it kind of goes counterproductive to what we as jazz musicians perceive ourselves to be. Sure. But there's a lot of truth to that. There really is a lot of truth to that. And so that in itself kind of drives for me everything. You know, I think about all of the years that I've worked to get the trio where I, I, I get. There are times I get phone calls and I just flat out say, I really thank you for calling me, but... I can't, I can't do the, 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 the performance because it just doesn't fit within what we want to do. So again, you, you gotta, there's gotta be that whiteboard up here 
that somehow stays with you and you see it from the very time you started doing this as you continue to do it and hopefully the vision for where you see it going in the future because as much as as when I get on the piano it is about hopefully as spontaneous as I can be and even that is hard as as the as the leader of the group you know if you happen to look and you see the promoter kind of glaring at you how do you stay focused in the music and not wonder oh no what happened I mean that in itself can totally the, 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 especially as a jazz musician, the improvisational side of things can just totally go away right away. So you have to build all kinds of different ways to make that work and hopefully make it work successfully. So yeah, I, I can't mention or can't stress enough that it really is about a plan. It really is. You know? Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. So you, you, know, you have to live it first and then go through the process of what you put on paper. What right. You put down and what you said. I'm going to answer this question this way before the phone call comes because then the negotiation is over. Right. Right. But and the other thing that keeps me very humble is that I'm only as good as my last gig. Is another way to looking at it for me. Sure. Sure. You know, I, I'm I'm thrilled that you've looked at my resume and you've looked at my bio, but that doesn't mount. Last night I played in a restaurant. I made some really great music with a great bass player and that counts that counts you know so it's not for me okay i'm playing in a restaurant versus saturday night i'm gonna have all the eyes on me as my trio is performing but for me the music level is not going to be anything different you know from early on if somebody hired the trio to do a wedding it was a are you hiring us because you know the fred Hughes trio you are oh you've heard us play and you want our music? Perfect. If somebody calls me and says, I'd like some jazz music, I'm thinking, yeah, it's probably not going to work good for us, you know? So again, it is about those choices. As you wow. said earlier, it really is about those choices. And that's a very good, that's very good right there. Uh, let's talk about the Fred Hughes trio while we're here, because Amy Shook rocks me on that bass, man. Tell me about Amy, tell me about Fred. I want to hang up my drumsticks, but you know, <laughs> I still got to play. But that brother rocks too. So tell me a little bit about the band. Uh, well, I'll start with Frank. Uh, Frank and I started playing together uh, shortly after I came to the area in '89. He was in the uh, Naval Academy band, and I was in the Jazz Ambassadors. So we got the opportunity to play, um, and it's somewhere around the mid '90s. Um, shortly before I got out on the Jazz Ambassadors, we started playing together a lot. And then uh, in 96, when I left, shortly after that, he joined and he's been on every record since then. And it's been, you know, I, I think the theme, I know the theme of the trio is that we're all enjoying making music together and we're friends on and off the stage. And I think that makes a, a, a lot, that helps a lot. But Frank and I have been able to grow since that amount of time together in the repertoire that we play, the way that we play it, how we interact together, what my expectations are, what his are. It's to the point now where I do something and all of a sudden, you know, my eyes are closed and he does it with me and, you know, we look at each other like, whoa. So there's that deepness of knowing each other so well on and off the stage that carries itself through with the music. So he knows what I'm doing. Um, 
Amy and he were playing together in other groups before she joined the group. And when she joined the group, it just made sense. I mean, she's a phenomenal musician. She's a great improviser and she's got such a great sound. I mean, the last two records, I didn't have to do anything to her bass. It was, that's the sound that she gets out of her bass, whether it's plugged into the mixer or whether it's live, it's just a phenomenal instrument. So the two of them had been playing together and it made sense now. He knows me, she knows him, and it all just worked and worked and worked and it continues to grow. Very fortunate that Pretty much, there hasn't been anything, and I've, I've asked some pretty goofy arrangements. I mean, some stuff that's gonna make us all work really hard. Um, and they're, they're down for it, they're, they're always there. So yeah, it's, a, it's wonderful to have a situation where I'm not just going to work, I'm going to work with my family. I've got people that I know care about me, care about the music, and want to put it on that level for everybody to hear. Oh, it's a great trio, man. It, it works. You can tell the uh, chemistry is there. There's a synergy that flows through it. And you're right, man. As a listener and some of the videos that I've been able to observe for you and Frank just to flow off of each other, it's just like you're just, it's just an ocean, man. I love well, it. I love the sound. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's probably the, to me, the, the biggest compliment is that when I see it in print or I'm talking to a person like you that says, I can feel that energy. I can feel that happiness coming through the recording. As you know, I mean, to get that, sometimes you think you're playing really good stuff on a recording, but to get all that extra stuff to come through to the person without them seeing it, that it's coming through the recording. To me, that's hopefully, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to do. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Now let's go deeper still because the last interview we did, talked about your grandmother taking you to church. It's an Assembly of God church. You uh, talked about the soul and the heart that went into it. You talked about going on Sunday nights to some of those black churches that and you can feel that now. We talked about your approach from a technical standpoint, but how much spirituality do you put into a Fred Hughes composition that you know is other? This is not what I learned. This is not from my book that you know, that you authored that worked so well for you. But this is, uh, Quincy Jones calls it, leaving room for God to walk in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. Uh, I, uh, there's several other analogies I could use. I think one of the ones that I really um, heard recently that I liked was Pizza Perlman talking about, I practice and hopefully when I get on the stage, it's gonna be just like I practice. But what really makes the music come out is the fact that there's more people on stage with me that weren't in the practice room. And things are gonna happen in a way that aren't gonna be the way they were in the practice room. And it's gonna make music in a way that's gonna make me work in a way that I'd never thought of before. And sure, and I, I, I alluded to that before, is that yeah, sometimes you get so emotional about that that sometimes the technical side goes out. And as he put it, he said, well, you just gotta let it come out because you gotta go with the flow. And you go back in the practice room and you fix that. So for me, it's about any time that I sit down at the piano, and there's a, there's a, a longer story there um, as, as to how I've arrived at what I do at, at the piano. But for me, it's about just getting rid of all the rest of it. Okay, I've practiced, I've done everything. When I get on the stage, it's about allowing all of that to flow, allowing that moment 
to to really really come through and there are times um that you know i, I you just have to close your eyes you know every time i play silent night and saturday night my dad will be there i'll think about my grandmother there it is thank you for going so deep with us because we know that music is spirit and that it transcends the 12 notes <laughs> that you're going to convey and every chord is going to mean something so i thank you for going deep with me well thank you for asking i mean it's how do you practice that? I mean, that, that, that for me is I actually try and put myself when I'm practicing in that space that I'm going to be. Again, that going back to what Itzhak Perlman said, is putting myself in that space that I almost get emotional in my practice routine. That, you know, allowing all of those feelings and things to come through. Because at the moment, you just don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. You know, I know I couldn't be a vocalist because... There are times when I get so emotional. I mean, I listen to a, a great vocalist and I'm like, I'm crying. I'm like, how are you singing this song without having this emotion come through you that, you know, yeah, um, that's, that's the whole other thing. But yeah, I, I mean, that, that, and it's not something that I consciously think about. I, I, I like to think it's the way I live. I mean, it's the way that you approach everything. My goodness. Now, tell me, there was a question that you hoped that I would ask at some point, whether this conversation or the last one we had, and I didn't ask it, and you're like, oh man, Jerry, I hope you asked me this question. What is the answer to that unknown question? It really isn't. I mean, to me, it's exactly what I just said about the music. I, I try to never go into any of these things with an agenda or any thought process. I hope when I start it that I'm going to be able to answer the questions in a way that helps someone else through my experiences. That's all I can ask. So thank you for asking some great questions because those are, that's, that's what needed to be asked. I mean, I know that sounds like an easy answer and a spiritual answer and all that, but that's the only answer I have is that because I don't approach any of these type of interviews with anything other than I'm going to be honest and hopefully be able to help somebody that might need help. I'm always approaching it as like, okay, Gary's going to say something that's going to make me go, oh man, I need to work on that. I need to think about that. So it's a two-way street, my friend. It's a two-way street. Well, I, I'm grateful, really. I know that this uh, conversation is going to lead to many more, whether we're on camera or not. I'm so grateful uh, since the Trish Hennessy uh, radio broadcast when we were on her show and just having that few minutes of dialogue or I think it was on text afterwards like you said instant messenger however we did I don't remember but to begin this process of building this community of mantra musicians because there are hundreds of thousands of us out here who have the same challenges same concerns same uh, accomplishments from very various levels but at the same time, we're saying, okay, you know, as we look from this standpoint, 25 years from now, when we're sitting out on the beach, you know, and we're in our retirement care, but we have these young lions coming up, how can we mentor them? What can we share with them from what we've learned that hopefully can help? And in this ever-changing industry, because it's changing all the time. We talked about that in the last conversation. How do we navigate 
these changes because I want to be playing in my 70s. I want to still have my sticks. You know what I'm saying? That I want to still be be able to contribute to this thing called music, but it's every day. It's a daily flow. And how do I stay above the current trends to remain relevant? It's an amazing life. It is. It is. I, 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 like I said, I don't know anything else to do. I, I really don't. The only thing that, that I, I would like to add to that is that sometimes we all, and I'm guilty of it myself, is that we get so narrow-minded about how we get from point A to point B that we forget to A, like I said, how did the last two records get where they are is because I put together a team. And you have to trust other folks to come into your or Yeah. And as jazz musicians, I think we're probably some of the, of the most obstinate. Thank you. Good word. Good word. Yes. I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> That we think we're an island that we got it all figured out more than anybody else and we forget that we're all doing this together and if we don't help each other out on it we, we're, we're just not going to get anywhere um, you're absolutely that's right. that's the part that sometimes i think we all forget about you're absolutely right and you know community conversation collaboration you know i'm not talking musically i'm talking about of our minds of our experiences and just coming together and going Hey, this may be a greater thing, but if I if I can't hear you because I think I haven't figured out, then I'm not going to move ahead. Yep, yep, yep. And like I said, I, I mean, I, I'd like to think that that when you asked me the question earlier about did you ask a question that I was hoping that you would ask? You know, going into those situations of not having an agenda and seeing where we all as a community are and where we can all go together. That, that and again maybe it's just because i've been doing it for so long that occasionally i just have to i walk into the room and you can you can feel this thing that's there that i'm like yeah this this is not me and so i quietly observe learn and move from there yeah. that's excellent well i so so appreciate the time that you've given me today and in our last conversation i so wish you and yours, a very, very Merry Christmas, a blessed new year. You got to end this conversation with giving us a peek of what Fred Hughes is doing in 2019. So come on with it. <laughs> well, I'm still, the whiteboard is still kind of, it's not sure which way it wants to go on that one. I know what I need to do, again, from the lesson that I learned about what I had done with the last two records. And what I learned two weeks, three weeks ago when we played in, in, in Memphis is that, okay, maybe reaching into that pocketbook to go deeper than you really thought is not something you were prepared to do right now. You just kind of wanted to sit back. No, there's something else that needs to go out there. People are asking for it, so you, yeah. you just have to do it. We've got at least two records already ready to go in, in stuff that we've been playing, so I just need to decide where I'm going to go with that. But... Yeah, that, that's that's where it is, is that I, I think by the end of the year, um, there's there's definitely going to be another record out, at least one, if not two. And Jerry, it's been it's been my honor to talk with you. I'm glad that we, we finally had a chance to do this. Uh, you know, I keep watching what you're doing. You're sending me this stuff, and I really, I love reading it, man. It's great. I mean, keep keep on keeping on. It's, it's wonderful, and a uh, very Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. My brother and friend, peace and blessings to you. And to yours, man. Lancaster, PA, 
Ohio, I mean, yo, <laughs> brothers, brothers in arms, uh, this is the incomparable Fred Hughes. I'm so grateful that he's uh, joined me today. So grateful for the knowledge and wisdom that you shared. And so I really thought that you would dig that conversation with Fred Hughes, the uh, incredible musician that he is and wonderful man, really dug in there, really, really strong. I don't know if I try to uh, get him back that uh, we would actually go that deep because he really uh, bared his soul here in this conversation. So thank you, Fred, for that. Um, I'll be reaching out to you soon, but for you, my friend, I trust and pray that you enjoyed it. And uh, I'm asking if you would, and if you have not already done so, come and check us out at theentremusician.com. Come not only kick the tires, but join the community we're building and see for yourself what it really is. This is organic. This is about true connections, real collaborations. We put it down here at the Entree Musician and it's building and it's growing and it's becoming stronger and stronger thanks to you. That's why I always say, my name is Jerry B. I am the Entree Musician, but most importantly, so are you. And we will see you again next time. God bless.